and as we open God's word together, we always want to ask the question, what was the original author trying to communicate to the original audience? In other words, what did the gospel writer, what did Matthew want the audience to know, to understand, to do? How did he want them to respond to what is being written? And then we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, how do you want me to respond to that message that you have preserved? In Second Peter uh, 1 I think verse 21, it says all the prophecy, none of it came from man. It all came from God. Prophets in the Old Testament didn't speak whatever was on their mind. They spoke what God told them to. And it's pretty clear that that's the case because rarely was their message received with pats on the back. And oh, thanks for that really encouraging, uplifting message. No, they often had to run away from kings uh, because they didn't want to hear the condemning message that the prophets brought of judgment from God in Second uh, Timothy, we read that all scripture is God breathed and useful, right, for tr- correction and for training in righteousness. And so we understand that all of this has been recorded and preserved by God for our benefit. So we want to ask, how, Lord, do you want me to respond to what you have preserved? And so we started in Matthew chapter one. And we read through the genealogy of Jesus. I know so many of you were just excited for genealogy. Um, You really looked forward to Matthew 1. And we saw that that God had sovereignly orchestrated the genealogy such that it was just clear as day that Jesus came from and Jesus came for moral, ethnic, and gender outsiders. And so... As we look at that and we go, well, God, how would you have me respond to what you've recorded and preserved and what you've sovereignly ordained? And we just understand that as we follow Jesus, it should stir something in us. So our hearts beat as he his did, as he does. And we love those who he loved. And so we're drawn to moral, gender and ethnic outsiders, those who are marginalized by society, discarded by society, are treasured by God and his people as we walk with him. And then we also recognize that there's nothing in our past, nothing in our present that necessarily excludes us from God's future. There's nothing that we've done. We can't run so far that he can't bring us back. That was the genealogy of Jesus. The second half of Matthew chapter 1, after the genealogy, uh, was Jesus' birth. And and you remember, uh, Matthew takes an unusually uh, Joseph-centric focus to the text uh, and we see that God asks something of Joseph that just is far beyond what Joseph ever imagined for himself it interrupted his plans it was a massive inconvenience for you planners in the room all of your plans I mean someone walks into your office takes your desk and throws everything off your desk and in the floor and burns your filing cabinet and your your mind is spinning what is I going to do today and tomorrow and the next day God totally interrupts his plans Ask him to do something that no one in his family would have been excited about. None of his friends would have supported it. And God says, go and, and do it anyway. I know it doesn't make sense. I know there's no precedence for this. You've never seen something like this before. Do it anyway because you trust me. And God gives Joseph everything he needs to do everything that he's asked. And it's at the end of Matthew 1 where Jesus is uh, described with that name, Emmanuel, God with us. And we understand that the Father, by sending Jesus, does for us everything that we need to do everything that he's asked us to do and so how do we respond to that we take a step towards jesus and when we're inconvenienced and confused and it doesn't make sense and our plans are interrupted we don't go oh clearly god is out of control clearly he has no power clearly i'm left on my own to figure out all of life we take a step toward 
Jesus because he's given us everything that we need to do everything that he's asked us to do. Emmanuel, God with us. And so now we step into chapter 2. We're going to read the first half of it together. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Um, And the focus is now on uh, the astrologers, the magi, the wise men, right? We can sing the song probably together. We won't because there's excellent singers up here. Uh, and I'm not one of them. Um, but now we focus on the wise men. And, and let's just read that together. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, uh, quoting from the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Jesus is born in in Bethlehem, of course, and Matthew, who emphasizes thematically the kingship of Jesus, mentions Bethlehem five times in his gospel compared to all three other gospel writers who combined only mention Bethlehem three times. The emphasis is on this kingly origin from the line of David, that is the city of Bethlehem. The astrologers come, they walk into Jerusalem. Hey, we're looking for the king. You guys all must know where he's at, right? This is Jerusalem. You know where the king is. Herod and the Jews, it says, are troubled. The astrologers continue to follow the star. Uh, they find Jesus. They worship him there. And they give him their gifts. And then, warned by the Lord in the dream, they go back, avoiding Herod, and go back to where they came from. Uh, as we jump in, there's just two themes I want to draw our attention to this morning, and, and one is there's always going to be godless rulers who set themselves opposed to the work of God, and they will always eventually be defeated. They will always eventually be defeated. Now, how do we know Herod tried to inhibit the divine purposes? Uh, we read in the rest of chapter 2 that the astrologers were warned to go uh, home another way and to not go back to Herod. And when Herod finds out, what does he do? 
he goes and he systematically slaughters every boy under the age of two in all the land hoping to get Jesus. What would cause someone to set themselves opposed to the work of God? What causes someone to do that? Well, we know what Herod was afraid of. Herod was afraid that someone born from the line of Judah with a rightful claim on the throne might be a credible threat to the power, the absolute power and rule that he wanted for himself. So he systematically slaughters the little boys, two years of age and under, in order to cling to power, in order to cling to the illusion of control. And what we're going to see throughout the text is that Jesus is king over all powers because every effort by Herod is going to be thwarted by God. Every effort by Herod is going to be thwarted by God. The question is then, is are we, is, is culture today any different than Herod? Herod clings to the illusion of power. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm the ruler. He wasn't even a Jew. He was made ruler by the Romans. So the king title is even a bit misleading, but he wants to cling to his rule. The question is, do we see in culture today a similar type of desire to cling to rule, to cling to power, to cling to absolute authority over our own lives? And I think the answer is yes, that we could spend week after week after week and hit on a thousand different ways that we do that. Just a couple ways that we see in culture One of the things we see in culture is the desire to move away from all expectations such that no one can lay claim or put expectations on us as to what we do or how we spend our time. One of the ways that we see that is in marriage. We often have expectations of our spouse, but rarely then are committed to the Lord's expectations of us. It's very easy to put expectations on someone else. It's an altogether different thing to submit our marriages, to submit ourselves in marriage to expectations that God has for us expectations is one way um another way is just what we do uh, with our bodies there's a desire to be in charge have rule have authority over our own bodies and it comes into uh, the discussion on abortion it comes into the discussion about sexual sin it comes into all sorts of really polarizing realms of society where at the heart is the pride of man to want to rule himself would want to rule herself and to make his own decisions to make her own uh, decisions in defiance of God to not submit ourselves not submit our lives not submit our bodies to the Lord there's that desire for control um, we see it in the idea of, of just what is truth and morality uh, where what is true becomes whatever is true for you and what is right is whatever is right for you. And the Bible speaks in absolutes because uh, God is, is love and in him there is no darkness. And so things are either objectively good or they're not. And yet uh, we want to make truth something that is relative. And so what happens is then you end up elevating people. And the greatest offense against humanity you can do is to put parameters or to restrain humanity Some of you know the NFL quarterback who was criticized widely for encouraging kids to bring their Bibles to school. And one of the reasons he was criticized so widely for encouraging kids to bring their Bibles to school is because the Bible says that we are not the top of the food chain. God is. The Bible says that there's things that are right and there's things that are wrong, things, a path to life and a path to destruction. 
And, and so this quarterback was criticized widely by people who want to go down whatever road they want with no consequences, saying, how dare you encourage kids to bring this object of hate and oppression into our schools because we want whatever we do to be affirmed and even celebrated. And so we see all throughout culture, all throughout politics, all throughout um, entertainment, all throughout the news, this desire, uh, the pride of man uh, for control. Uh, some of you know that I had my first hunting experience this week, and I'll try not to talk long about it, but just to say that um, uh, it was really important for me to not do whatever made sense to me. It was really important for me to not do whatever seemed right in my own eyes. If it was up to me, we would have gone out hunting in the middle of the day when the sun is high and it's hot out and it's nice and it's beautiful. That would obviously be the time that would make the most sense. Some of you know that that's not the time that makes the most sense. You actually want to go the worst parts of the day, early in the morning and when it's cold in the evening because apparently the animals are moving a little bit more. But had we done what I wanted to do, we wouldn't have seen or found anything. Uh, it's important uh, then to lean on people who know or are experts or people who have done that before. Uh, apparently, you can't just go hunting for whatever you want at whatever time you want. Apparently, there's weeks and days that you can go for certain things, and you can't even pick what animal you go after. They're going to tell you what animals you can go and even where you can go look for those animals. Again, it's not up to me. I can't do whatever I want. I can't use whatever uh, rifle I want. I can't pursue whatever animal I want. I can't even get it up at the time of the day that I want. But in surrendering that power and surrendering that autonomy, uh, become successful and things go well. And it's much safer, actually, proves out, um, to follow the rules and to do things as they're described. And so there's something good that happens when we relinquish control, when we recognize that we don't know it all. And if that's just hunting, how much more with life? How much more would we want to submit ourselves to a creator of the universe who made us? And when it comes about a path that leads to life and a path that leads to destruction, how much more would we want to hear from him regarding what those two paths look like and how we maneuver our way down those paths? Many of us act like Herod. And we hold on to power so tightly, hold on to control over our own lives so tightly we don't want to surrender any power we might have to Jesus. Herod did not want to surrender any power he might have, even though it was given to him by Rome. Uh, Herod actually was described as a pretty successful ruler. He kept peace in the city for much longer than those who came before him and many who came after him. He wanted to cling to the illusion of power uh, in his life. And, and so I guess I would just say, what does that look like for you? Where are you clinging on to power in your own life? Is it a relationship where you've been mis mistreated and so you're justifying treating somebody a certain way or cutting them out or ruling them off? Uh, is it some aspect of your work, the way that you spend your time or your hobbies? This is my time. These are my resources. This is my money. I will do with it what I want. You won't have any say over it. I earned it. It's mine. I made it. It's mine. It's my skill. Uh, it's mine. There's a lot of mine 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 right and we recognize that with our kids that's not a good thing uh, but we have a really hard time seeing it in ourselves this desire for control one of the ways i see it most in my life is the infrequency with which i take things to the lord in real time and so there will be a time in the morning with the lord 
uh, in his word, uh, in prayer, maybe even writing, maybe even journaling, uh, and then go about my day almost as if I've left him there around the table uh, in the comfortable chair where my Bible is uh, believing that then the difficulty that comes up is up to me to navigate. The conversations that come up are up to me to navigate uh, rather than taking every sense of anxiety, every sense of fear that comes up during the day, every bit of worry, every conversation, and walking into every conversation, Lord, what would you have me say? Because I don't want to say what makes sense to me. I want to say what you would have me say. I don't want to navigate this based on what I can see or what makes sense to me. I want to submit this situation. I want to submit this person. I want to submit this obstacle. I want to submit this difficulty. I want to submit this fear. I want to submit this worry to you, Lord. Would you you replace my fear with your peace? And so we have this Emmanuel, this God with us, and then we sort of set him in a box and leave him over here and go about our day. And for me, what I see in my heart is the desire to do everything by myself and then treat him like the phone a friend option from the old game who wants to be a millionaire, well, I will call you when I need you, but I've got 90% of life, and so I'll just call you when something comes up that's, that's difficult. And so we see in our own hearts and our own lives a perpetual wrestling where we want to control, where we want to do things our way, and we see that we are much more like Herod, not wanting to submit to Jesus than we might like to admit. The first point this morning is that simply that Jesus is king of, over all powers, and the second is that Jesus is king over all nations. Uh, the second theme that, that jumps off the page here in Matthew is this contrast between the Jews, who were the insiders, the ones that had all the sacred writings, the ones that had all of the great history, that had Abraham and David as their forefathers, and these Gentiles, these astrologers, these outsiders. And so what's interesting is you have Jews, insiders, who don't respond to Jesus, are disinterested in his arrival. Verse 4 says they're, they're stirred up, they're riled. And when Herod assembles them, he says, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes to the people, he inquired of them as to where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They knew where he was going to be born. They just didn't seem for whatever reason to care. They knew that he was going to come from this city, but they did nothing about it when the astrologers said, it's happening now. So you have the Jews, the insiders who knew the law, who had all the sacred writings, and they are disinterested or apathetic or don't respond to what's going on. You have the astrologers who are outsiders. One of the interesting things uh, about that word outsider, uh, we're going to have a young man uh, hopefully next month come, and he's a young man we sent to North Africa to be an intern with Jeremy and Hannah and that ministry there. And, and he's going to share a little bit of with us what it's like to be an outsider in a culture that you've never experienced firsthand and how hard it is to walk into a market and buy something that you need to eat and just open up your wallet and say, how much? Because you have no idea what you're holding by way of currency or, or what that costs and just how difficult it is to get by in day-to-day things as an outsider. But as an outsider, it's also really hard to catch the significance of what's going on around you. And yet these outsiders, these Gentiles, these astrologers, just going on a star are following, in other words, the little that they know about who Jesus is, the little that they have to go on, 
America. They are not going to let their background as outsiders keep them from finding Jesus. The Jews as insiders are going to let their religious background keep them from finding Jesus. They knew and they did nothing about it. One of the things that's interesting um, as we step back and look at Old Testament and New Testament these some of these first worshipers of Jesus are Gentiles, are outsiders, and it reminds us that Jesus is king over all nations, that Jesus came for all nations, and that Jesus will be worshipped. He's worthy of worship, and he'll get it, even if those who should don't offer it. And uh, as we sort of flash back to the Old Testament, one of the significant themes that raises up out of the pages is that, that God, that Yahweh, is Lord of all. He's not just Lord of Israel because there were regional gods. Every nation, every group of people had some sort of deity that they tried to worship. And repeatedly, we see in the Old Testament the Lord taking careful, careful uh, precision to point us to the fact that Yahweh is not just Lord of Israel. He's Lord of all nations. Uh, we see that in Daniel we see that uh, with Abraham and with uh, Gideon and many others. Abraham comes from a family of idol worshipers. Gideon, as he's being called to battle, called by the Lord to go do this extraordinary thing, the Lord says, first go home and break down all of your idols because he comes from a family of idol worshipers. And the Lord's making the very pointed statement is, I am not just one of your these little uh, localized national gods. I am Lord of all. I'm something altogether different than what you're getting right now. Uh, It's why in Daniel, repeatedly, when the Lord works, one of those pagan kings will make a statement about God, and he won't just say, wow, God's so powerful, although that will be included. He won't just say, wow, God can do so much, although that's going to be included. There's often a statement of comparison that Yahweh is superior to all of their gods. From Daniel 3, verse 29, after the Lord saves the men out of the fiery furnace. This is what the king says. Therefore, Daniel three twenty nine. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, any nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And that is a repeated message throughout Daniel. There is no other God who can reveal dreams. There is no other God who can rescue in this way. It happens over and over and over because culture at the time had many gods and God's saying, no, there is only one God. And so for many of us that have tried to make many different things, gods in our lives, including ourselves, uh, it's an extraordinary thing to be humbled such that we recognize that there is just one Lord over all and that is Yahweh. The astrologers were outsiders, but they wouldn't let anything keep them from finding out about Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, are you more like the Jews or more like the astrologers? The Jews knew everything and did nothing. The astrologers knew very little, and they pursued and they pursued and they pursued until they found Jesus. And once there, they worshipped him. They brought him gifts. And they worshipped him. The Jews found reason after reason after reason to not follow him. Jesus did the right things 
for the wrong people. Jesus did the right things on the wrong days. Uh, He didn't fit their expectations. Uh, They found reason after reason to not follow, and the astrologers grasped at whatever they had to go find Jesus. I wonder how many of us today are more like the Jews, reason after reason after reason, that keeps us from Jesus. Maybe, Maybe it was your upbringing. And your upbringing was rough and it was ugly and there's just scars for miles. And you say, God, how could you possibly let this happen? If there is a God who's good and all powerful, then how could this have happened? And it becomes a barrier that keeps us uh, from finding Jesus. Some of us were raised in Christian homes and we had um, maybe a very hypocritical upbringing. And, and so we have this critical eye about everything and everyone and it keeps us from finding Jesus. Some of us have been hurt sig- in significant ways by people in our life, some outside the church, some inside the church, and it creates walls, keeps us from finding Jesus. It keeps us from surrendering control, because if we can s- surrender control, uh, we might not be in charge, and if we might not be in charge, those things might happen again. And so as we see throughout the rest of Matthew 2, um, which is essentially God moving Joseph and Mary and Jesus from city to city to city as he protects them, from the continual efforts of Herod to thwart his purposes. God protects his people, but each move is a strategic and intentional step of the Lord that fulfills Old Testament prophecy, such to say that there will always be rulers who will attempt to thwart God's power, but in the end, they will always be defeated. And so that allows us, as we hear that message, to step towards Jesus Uh, even with all of our walls, even with all of our barriers, even with all of our past hurts, even with all of our past offenses, uh, that no weapon formed of man can prosper. The Jews had the law, did nothing with it. There was no burning desire in them to find out more. The astrologers didn't, and they burned to find out more such that they made this great trek and offered these great gifts and offered this worship um, they brought gold and they brought frankincense and they brought myrrh. What does the Lord want of us? A, a couple of verses, if you have your Bibles. Uh, Psalms fifty-one, seventeen. What does the Lord want of us? What is our acceptable offering of worship? If we were to show up wearing funny hats and clothes like the astrologers, what does the Lord want of us? Psalms fifty-one seventeen says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Uh, so at first reading, we might think a, a broken spirit, so God wants us to just be crushed and de- defeated every day. No, it is that humbling from recognizing that we are not on top of the food chain. He is, and what the Bible says us about us is true. In Matthew 1, it says Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. Why? Because we are sinners in the world. We don't need just patched up. It's not like we have a scrape on our knee and we just need a Band-Aid, right? We're spiritually dead and we need to be made spiritually alive, except the problem is we don't have any tools uh, and when no training, Jesus needed to come to do that for us, to pay the penalty for our sin that we couldn't pay for ourselves. And just as 
the Lord provided Joseph everything he needed. The Lord in Jesus provides everything uh, that we needed. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. That broken and contrite heart leads to repentance, leads to confession, leads to this acknowledgement that, yes, I am broken, but I am, can be made whole. Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth, this is where a broken and contrite heart will lead us. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10 says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A broken and contrite heart leads us to confession, leads us to Jesus, not from him. Pride makes us run from him, desire for control. The illusion of control is the best that we can grasp at, causes us to run from him, a broken and contrite heart runs to him. And last, John 14, 21. John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commandments, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And will manifest myself to him. Whoever has my commands and keeps them. The Jews had his commands. The Jews had his instruction. The Jews had all the prophecy and were apathetic, benevolent, distant. They did nothing. They stirred up. It was upsetting to them. The hearing that Jesus may have come was upsetting to them. It was upsetting to Herod. The astrologers took what little they had and they went searching if you're here this morning and you think God might be leading, but you don't know where he's going, the astrologers didn't have a clue either. They just saw the star thing, and they were following it. They arrive in Jerusalem. Hey, we don't know where we're going. It's like it's like a guy pulling into the gas station and saying, I, I know that I'm close. Where are we at? It's what happens at the grocery store often. Where's the bread? You just someone tell me where the bread is so that I don't have to keep walking and looking. They go into Jerusalem. Anyone know where Jesus is, where this king of the Jews? They didn't know where they were going either, but if you feel the Spirit leading in some way, would you take a step toward Jesus and go find out, go figure out what that sort of spiritual flickering is that is going on inside you, that calling from the Spirit that is going on inside you where you recognize there's something meaningful and significant and real and impactful and important happening, but you don't really know what to do with it. Take a step toward Jesus as the astrologer. Just keep walking, keep looking, keep searching. Go find people that could maybe point you in the right direction, and we'd love to be part of that journey with you here. If you fit into that category of the Jews, and, and there's just wall after wall after wall after wall, and it keeps you distant uh, from Jesus, it keeps you distant from his people, would maybe be the day uh, that you say, well, if God can take care of his people, if he can lead Mary and Joseph from Bethlehem to down to Egypt, back into Nazareth, if he can take care of them, maybe I can entrust him with my hurts. Maybe I can entrust him with my very broken, very flawed past. I can tr trust him with all of the wounds that have accumulated uh, from other people. I can trust him with my background. I can trust him with the places I've been. Maybe, maybe if Jesus came from moral, ethnic, and gender outsiders. He really did come for moral, ethnic, and gender outsiders. And when I feel like I don't measure up, maybe I'll discover in Jesus that Jesus came for people who don't measure up. If you're here today with just huge walls up, 
love to break those walls down, but we trust the Spirit will do that. But take a step toward Jesus today and find people that will go on that journey with you. We'd love to be part of that. There'll be people up here after service that would love to pray with you about what that looks like. Uh, you're welcome on your communication cards to put something like, help me figure out what following Jesus looks like. I'm confused. Um, I just would challenge you in real time this week, every conversation, every decision, every time anger flares up, every time confusion, frustration, anxiety, worry, fear, take it to Jesus in real time. We have a king who has power over all powers and power over all nations. He's with us 24-7. There's no reason to spend much of our day trying to do this on our own, possibly even setting ourselves against uh, the divine purposes. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your son, from Matthew 1 and from Matthew 2, Lord, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, Lord, that we have God with us, 24-7, 365. Lord, may we live, even this afternoon, in conscious awareness that we have God with us. Lord, every frustration, every hurt, every anxiety, every fear, Lord, moment by moment, help us to take those to you. Lord, just even simply acknowledging, Lord, I'm afraid right now. Lord, I'm worried. Lord, I'm hurt. Lord, would you bring your comfort? Lord, would you bring your peace? Because you sent Jesus, God, with us to be with me. I don't have to be alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.